I love coming to Santa Cruz. I come down here every couple of weeks. You go out to the beach or hang out on Pacific Avenue. Uh, the UC Santa Cruz is always a bit of a mystery to me. It's sort of hobbit land and these hidden little colleges in the woods. So it's, it's fun to be here and see you all. Um, the, the, there's a couple of things I want to talk about today. One is uh, becoming a writer, and the other is this notion that I call the life box, which is a type of digital immortality. And then uh, I think I might read you a short story, and we can have some discussion too. Uh, Starting out, I read a, a lot of science fiction as a boy, and I always wanted to be a science fiction writer, but uh, I somehow didn't feel that was something I could do. I, I felt like I had to go to college. Well, I had to go to college anyway. Uh, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and going to college was a good way to get out of town. And you don't want to keep living with your parents, so I'm sure that's part of the reason why you all are here, too. Uh, and then uh, I majored in mathematics. Uh, for, for something about my mind, the way it works, I didn't find the mathematics difficult. I, I had wanted to major in English, but they, they gave us these long books that I didn't want to read. <laughs> like, I don't know, Tom Jones or Pamela or... Uh, these really corny old English books. <laughs> I couldn't deal with them. So um, I wasn't doing well in those classes. And uh, I liked math. It was easy. And then uh, I did always want to be a writer, though, anyway. I mean, I liked the beatnik writers. I liked Jack Kerouac and William Burroughs. And there were some science fiction writers I liked. Growing up, I liked Heinlein and... Robert Sheckley and Isaac Asimov. And, uh, but the thing that was happening to science fiction around, uh, oh, around the late 70s, 1980, it was getting sort of, just sort of lame. Uh, it, was, it was sort of sometimes in music, there'll be this thing where the popular music is uh, sort of very puffy uh, without much of a beat. And, People sort of doing voice exercises when they're singing, you know. I'm thinking of Mariah Carey, for instance. I don't know, sort of. But I'm sure maybe some of you like her, but it's just the other type of music that I liked was something more like, you know, hard, simple rock and roll. The Ramones would be a perfect example of that. And I wanted to write science fiction, but I didn't want it to be puffy arena rock science fiction where the Heroes are hereditary aristocrats, and they're in the Space Navy. I wanted to write about losers <laughs> and, you know, potheads and people who hated the government. And uh, so I started writing books about people like that. And uh, there are a few other guys and women writing that kind of book, and we came to be known as cyberpunks. And punk, this was the early 80s. Uh, punk rock was big, and we had sort of a punk attitude, the sex and drugs and rock and roll thing. And the cyber, because uh, cyber is a word, it's sort of unclear what cyber even means. It, it sort of means something having to do with computers. Okay, so uh, And one of the things that I could see coming 
and other people could see it coming too. This was a long time ago, 1980. This was, how many years ago was that? 30, 40 years ago? Uh, the idea that the computers or the machines that we build, there was some tendency for them to be becoming more like us. And then this sort of a, a flip side of the coin, as we are working with machines that are able to act a little more like us, we're maybe compelled to act a little more like machines. So this is sort of fusion between humans and machines. Now, in, I got my PhD in mathematical logic, and a question that interested me was whether or not we could ever make a computer or a robot that was like a person. And uh, there was some discussion about it. Some people thought you could theoretically prove that it was impossible, but those proofs don't really work. Uh, what you can prove is if you create a program that's as smart as a human being, you won't be able to understand in detail how that program works. Uh, the way you would have to do it would be to let it evolve. So that's one angle there. And uh, so the first novel I wrote was called Software. And this wasn't a word that people used around 1982. It wasn't a word that anybody knew. I just happened, I read it, I saw it in the Scientific American magazine. Because we remember at that point, the only computers they had were these, these things, you know, the size of a piano or really the size of half this room and they'd be in the basement somewhere and you had to you'd punch cards to talk to it. So it wasn't at all like your smartphone in your pocket. But I'd found out that the instructions for these things were called software. And then I started thinking, well, what if I think, and the idea I'm gonna to describe to you now is a very familiar idea, but uh, believe it or not, I was the first person who ever wrote a novel about it. Okay, so uh, I don't get much recognition for that. That sort of ha comes hand in hand with being a cyberpunk. It means you're a despised outcast. <laughs> sort of made a career out of that. But uh, the, the idea I'm getting at is you can think of your body as being, in some sense, like a piece of hardware, like a, a machine or something. And your thoughts, your personality, the things you know, the way you think, that's the software, okay? So that's not, these days that's not a hard idea to grasp. In 1980, that was a very hard idea to grasp. Now, uh, the idea would be, and again, this is an idea you've seen in a lot of movies by now. What if you could take somebody's personality and upload it into the web and then download it onto some Android that looked just like the person? And that's what my first novel, Software, was about. It was, uh, this dude, he was modeled on my father, and this is the trans-real aspect, meaning I often have characters based on people that are from my life. And my father at that time was, he was drinking very heavily. He was, he'd kind of lost it. And uh, he'd had a heart bypass, and it had sort of addled his personality a little bit. This also, they weren't used to doing heart bypasses then. So uh, I had the idea that what if, uh, what if my father had been the guy who first invented robots? And then I thought, we want to have some intelligent robots. And 
we can prove by mathematical logic, as I mentioned, that the program for a human-level robot is too hard to write. And the, only, the way that nature does things that are too hard to think of is to let them evolve. Now, we've evolved over whatever, you know, millions of years on the whole surface of the Earth. So the odds of evolving an intelligent brain inside a chintzy little computer on your desk in a week, you know, not that great. But uh, something that is happening, depending how closely you pay attention to science news, there's this thing that Google is now doing, They're in a way using all the computers on the planet as a single network. So they've got a really big computer. <coughs> and they're using a new technique called deep learning, which is a way of evolving a program. Now, <laughs> deep learning used to be called neural nets. And they already used neural net program in the post office in order to read your handwriting. In other words, if you, you handwritten envelope, <coughs> they've got a thing that's going to scan it and read the writing. And that used to be considered a very difficult problem. But uh, <coughs> didn't you bring me some water, Tim? Oh, OK. But uh, with this new thing called uh, the deep learning, I won't go into the technical details of it, but it's, it's neural nets, but kicked up a notch. And uh, so the point I'm getting at, it's not completely out of the question that we could evolve some software that would seem like a person if you talk to it. Now, one of the questions always is, uh, how do we know if we've made an intelligent program? And there's this traditional answer that this dude, Alan Turing, Invented. There was a movie about him a couple of years ago. Um, and he said, well, if you're talking to the thing and you can't tell if you're talking to a person or to a machine, then you might want to say this thing is at the level of human, human personality. And talk to it you know, for an hour you know, about all sorts of things that interest you and if it keeps nailing it. Now, um, anyway, <laughs> backing up a little, in my first novel, Software, I had this idea, I used to be worried about dying. Uh, probably that struck most of you that you're enjoying your life and then apparently at some point it's gonna stop. It's gonna be like a jump cut, you know, like the film just gets snipped and there aren't any more frames. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've ever been unconscious or had surgery, you've probably had that experience where you're going along and then there's just this cut and then an hour or a day later, you wake up and it starts up. And then you could think, well, what if it didn't start up? That's how it would be. You know, it lights out. Now, there is a possibility, you know, we don't really don't know. Some of us believe in an afterlife. And, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's impossible. It could happen. But uh, we like to, I used to worry about it. Let's put it that way. Now that I'm old, somehow I don't care anymore. <laughs> uh, I think part of the reason I didn't want to die was I was, there was a lot of things I wanted to do in my life. I wanted to have children, you know, I wanted to write some books, I wanted to get married and see things. And now I've done all that. So, <laughs> I mean, if I die now, I don't want to die, but it, it won't be like I'm getting totally screwed, you know? <laughs> I got to check off a lot of the things I want to do. But for you guys, it would be worse. Uh, Anyway, backing up again, so I had always wondered, would there be a way to be immortal? 
Now, one sort of half halfway way to do it is this thing that I talked about in software and that I sometimes use the word life box to stand for it. And the idea here is, suppose I could get all of the memories out of my brain. Suppose I could extract all the software. And for the moment, we'll just worry about the data. You know, all the thoughts, the emotions. The actual operating system of the brain, that's a harder problem, okay, to make something that, that can think and reason like a human. <coughs> I don't know why my voice is screwing up. But um, we'll, we'll go ahead and won't worry about that one for the moment. The operating system will get that with deep learning using the Google planetary computer. But the thing is, how do you make something that is like you? Well, you get <coughs> all the things you know, all the things you've ever thought. And in, in my novel software, <coughs> the way they extracted that was to cut the dude's brain up. And like the robots cornered him, and they cut off the top of his head, and they had steel spoons, and they ate his brain. And they chewed it up. That was a very cyberpunk type scene. Okay? And uh, when, while they're doing that, they're you know, tasting the chemicals. Because your brain, it's, there's all sorts of things in there. There's the, the physical network, the way the neurons are connected. <coughs> then there's also, <coughs> God, there's also a lot of uh, transmitter chemicals. And then there's things like RNA molecules might be storing some memory. So if you can extract all of that, then you could theoretically take the guy's personality and put it onto an android. Now, a question that comes up then, suppose that they're able to extract all the data out of my mind and put it onto a machine. Would that machine be the same as me? And uh, there's various ways of looking at it. If it was done really well, it might talk just the way I do. It might give the same answers to all the questions. But I feel like there's something more to me than just my body and the software. There's this third thing that we feel like we have. And it's the sense, just the, sense, the glow of consciousness, the sense of being yourself. And it's, you can compact it down. It's very simply the concept I am. I feel like I am, and would that robot have that feeling? Well, uh, you might say, well, no, it wouldn't, because that's peculiar only to me. But you can do a side move there. I've thought about this for a long time. So the side move would be to say, <clears throat> when I say the essence of myself is what, I say I am. But if Tim says what's the essence of himself, he also says I am. So then I'm saying, well, wait, if you take all the personality and put it over there, it'll still be the same sense of I am. There's a, uh, there's, a, there's a Zen saying, they would say something like, does, uh, does, this, does this stick have Buddha nature? And then the answer would be, the universal rain moistens all creatures. And so what they're getting at with that is anything in the world, it has this quantum glow. It has, uh, it's in, in the pudding. It's part of the big aha. 
And it, you could think of it as having this sort of consciousness. So the idea is, if I say, well, maybe consciousness isn't just this little spark that's in me, if I say that consciousness perfuses all of reality, then if I could make an identical copy of myself, maybe it would have that flame. So maybe it would feel like the same person. Now, I've said a whole lot of things in a row, and I have a lot more things to say. But why don't I, I'm sure you, somebody here must have a question. And anybody who has a question gets a free book by Rudy Rucker. Uh, yes. Um, so I guess I actually have a couple of questions. Um, first of which is, uh, uh, did you contemplate the possibility of immortality because you ever had the desire to be immortal? Well, I would like to be immortal. Yeah, of course. And then, um, I guess, do you think it would be required um, for it to be like a complete transfer of consciousness, um, like from organic to cybernetic, uh, for the individual to continue growing? Because, um, well, as a part of being human, we continue to develop um, we continue to learn, we continue to make connections. Do you think that would be a requirement in order to, um, for it to be uh, a continuation instead of just being you at one certain point being transferred and then you are? Okay. <clears throat> I think what you're saying is there could be different kinds of immortality. I mean, the kind that people really, given the choice, they would say, well, I would like to keep on being in a human body, but I also wouldn't want it to get hella old. You know, I'd like to be in a nice 30-year-old body for the, rest, for the rest of eternity. That's, you know, probably the best option. And then these other things, these are like plan B options. You say, well, maybe I could put my personality into a, a computer. And then, as I say, at this point, I almost think, why bother? But it's, it's something you could do. Another option, I mean, we can get very freaky with it. We could say, well, if I'm an information pattern, the thing is, we have this image of what a computer is as being something with a silicon chip. But uh, there's this man, Stephen Wolfram. He's wrote a, a really interesting book called A New Kind of Science. And in there, he makes the case that we can look at any physical system as being like a computer in the sense that it's obeying rules and it's processing information. A tree is, you know, it's very slowly moving, it's computing the best optimal position to be in. If you look at water, we've had a lot of chance to see running water recently. And water is doing, there's a type of computation that's going on there with the ripples moving back and forth like bits inside a machine. And even air, or even for that matter, a rock, <clears throat> because there's something called quantum computation and there's all these you can think of a rock, it's like an octillion atoms that are connected by little springs, and they're all vibrating. So there's a hell of a lot going on in there. We, we just see a rock, but there's a lot, a lot happening. So I could say, well, what if I could just project my consciousness into that rock, you know, or into the air? So there might be other angles. But the thing is, another thing about your question, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that our, per, our self is our mind, but... Uh, Yourself is also your body, you know, and your heart and your muscles and all that. So that's another big part of it. Yes, another question. Um, 
I mean, I think Socrates believes in a duality of body and mind. What do you think about that? Uh, is the mind separate from the body or not? Well, that kind of, it kind of gets to what I was talking about just a second ago, that <clears throat> there's this, we do tend to be intellectual. We think there's our logical thoughts. There's this movie in our head that we're watching, and we think that's the real me. But other times, like if you're running or making love or on the beach, you're not necessarily in your head. Your, your whole body is thinking. Your, your body is a type of mind, too. So, um, but the idea of body separated from mind, that, that is the image that underlay my novel, Software, and it's what underlay the idea of the life box, that we could peel out the software and uh, put that onto a different, different, uh, different substrate. Yeah. You were discussing the 80s, the um, origins of the, uh, the genre or subgenre cyberpunk and your own place in it. And where would you trace your own work and the sort of morphing or evolution as to where it's gone now in science fiction in general and what's happened to the subgenre of cyberpunk? Well, you get a book for that. Thank you. <laughs> this is a book called Trans Real Cyberpunk. It's a book of stories I wrote with Bruce Sterling. He's one of the famous cyberpunks. Uh, probably the Bruce Sterling, William Gibson, John Shirley, and I were the main cyberpunks. Now, it's sort of, I mean, that was a long time ago. It's, the idea of cyberpunk sort of got into Hollywood with the movie Blade Runner. And the whole idea, whenever you see a movie where it's dark and there's rain on the streets, and you see the city reflected, and people, robots are k killing you, and that kind of thing. People are getting high by plugging things into their head. That's a sort of cyberpunk genre. So it's, it's something that sort of entered the mass mind, and uh, <clears throat> so it's still alive in that sense. It's, uh, but it's it sort of spread out. It, it's not particularly that a lot of new writers are writing cyberpunk. So Charles Strauss is a writer who's somewhat younger than me, who writes really interesting books that are sort of cyberpunk. Yeah, right here. So you have a whole lot of people who think like that the development of AI could mean the end of the world and that if you were to develop that uh, thinking software that thinks like a human could potentially lead to disastrous consequences and whatnot, but what do you think a uh, self-thinking robot that didn't have a personality placed in it, that developed it own, what do you think it would feel and what do you think it would think? Okay, um, would you like a book? Sure. Okay. We're running out, so get your questions in soon. Uh, the, uh, is there a danger of AI? That's, I mean, there's a couple of points you raised there. Uh, sometimes there's this sort of Terminator kind of idea that the robots will want to kill us off. I don't think that's actually a logical idea, because I spend, I spend easily an hour a day taking care of my computers. You know. 
my smartphones. You're always upgrading them, you know, and making sure they, they have the new platform and you got the up, upgrade and, you know, charging it. So we already are the slaves of the robots. I mean, that's, that's over, you know, that, that ship has sailed. So uh, we're, we're, they're our masters. But uh, now, the thing is, do they, if the machines get to this point of being self-conscious, what would they think about? What would they want to do? Um, at this point, we don't really feel like they are self-conscious, just in a sort of low, brutal way of trying to make you unhappy, they're conscious, but <laughs> like a snake or something, but not, not conscious in the sense of having thoughts. What would they want to do? Well, generally, if things happen in an evolutionary way, what drives evolution is it's the things that manage to get the most copies of themselves made. So they would be wanting to promote themselves and, and get you to make more of them. Um, another question? Yeah? This is going back to the genre topic. Uh, the way you describe it kind of seems different from science fiction. So I'm kind of confused on what's the difference. Between cyberpunk and science fiction? Yeah. Oh, science, science fiction is a big field. It's a... Uh, there's all sorts of things that are called science fiction. I mean, we've got Star Trek, and then we've got we've got you know Asimov. We've got Generation Starship stories. Uh, there's a new space opera about taking ships to other planets. There's time travel books. So it's sort of a, a really kind of a large range of things that are science fiction. Lots of TV shows, lots of movies. And cyberpunk was one particular kind of science fiction. That's, it wasn't like it was all of science fiction. And in cyberpunk, the emphasis was on near future, something that would happen in the next 10 or 20 years. And it would be usually about people's interactions with robots or with artificial intelligence. And generally, the characters would be uh, disaffected uh, members, sort of like punks uh, who so a little bit like that. Like there's a TV show now about a guy, I forget the name of it, he's a hacker and he's always trying to... Mr. Robot? Yeah, yeah, that's a sort of a cyberpunk show, yeah. He wears a hoodie, what more do you want? Okay, uh, yeah, black... Yeah, I was reading uh, your short story, uh, Soft Death, earlier today, and I was yeah. wondering, um, you introduced like this concept of like the spirit not being able to like uh, move on because like the mind had a copy of itself. So I was wondering why you did that because like as you said earlier, um, you think like the spirit idea is possible, but you don't necessarily like, believe in it. So I was wondering why you like included the concept of like the spirit in that story. Okay, uh, you're talking about my story, soft death. Yeah, in there, there's a. One of the things in there, I'll give you sort of a longer answer. Um, one of the things in there was the idea that how do, would you extract somebody's software? Uh, the easiest is if the person is a, a blogger or somebody who's an author and you have all this, this huge amount of text they've written where you can kind of get stuff out of there. And uh, in the, for the purpose of that story, I think we had somebody interviewing the character 
and just asking him whole lots of words, looking for word associations, saying words to him and what does he say back to them, or putting uh, electrodes in his brain and seeing how he responds to certain words. Now, in that story, they ended up making a, a software model of the guy, and he was inside a, a big computer, and he didn't like it because all the other people inside that computer were jerks. You know, it's like you're in a dorm with, it's all EE e. majors, you know, or something. I don't know. But <laughs> are people that you don't want to hang around with. Not that I have anything against EE e. majors at all. But, uh, I'm sorry, what does it mean? What's e? Oh, electrical engineering. Electrical engineering? You can't have geek without EE, e. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and then, but for the purposes of that story, it's like you want to have some sort of twist at the end. And then the twist was that, or ordinarily, if you, if you die fully, it, in that story, as I imagine, if you totally die, then you, you sort of shoot out of your body. There's this sort of spark of energy that goes up into heaven. And then you get into something bigger. You know, it's sort of a, like a religious idea of the afterlife. And then in that story, I was saying he got stuck because he had enough of his mind left in this sort of kind of purgatory-like boring world where he's, I mean, you really wouldn't want to live inside a computer for an infinite amount of time. Because uh, sometimes in movies, they'll say, well, you could go into virtual reality. But uh, the thing is, if you're honest about it, virtual reality always sucks, you know? Because, I mean, if I look out the window here, I look at how gnarly and incredibly beautiful the trees are, and then if I go look at them, there's little bugs on them, you know, and everything has so much detail and is so rich. And if you look at, a, like if you're in some game world, I mean, you'll see something that looks sort of like a leaf, but if you zoom in on it, then there's always, you're just looking at some triangles, you know? It's just an, another triangular mesh. So uh, it wouldn't really be satisfying to be inside a computer world forever. So that's, that's sort of what I was getting at in that story. You, you get a book for a question, though. Come up and claim your prize. Oh, you already got one? Yeah. OK, just one per customer, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, let's try somebody new. Yeah? Um, so obviously, like, AI is kind of considered like a holy grail of like computer engineering and stuff. Um, but along with the idea of AI and every like book and movie it's ever been made in, there's always like the fear of their the next step of evolution and then humans fear them and then they destroy humans. So why do you think that we still strive for that when we know that there are these really devastating possible consequences of it? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. So why do we strive to achieve AI even though there's this fear that it might be uh, have some bad outcomes. Um, well, I think it's we like making things. We like making the most complicated things we can, and so the most complicated thing we know is people. So there's this sort of drive to to do it. Also, I think there's this idea if you could, if I could actually design an AI, then I would understand myself better. And I might then be in a position to, to tweak things about myself that I, I don't like very much. Now, whether we should have a fear of AI, uh, I'm a lot more scared of humans than I am of, of AIs. Uh, 
I mean, I know what humans are like. I mean, we're the ones who do the massacres, you know, and, and all that stuff. Uh, but then there's this sort of notion, this, again, the terminator idea of these implacable exterminator type AIs. But uh, I, I don't think it's super likely there would be AIs like that unless, well, if we let the military get heavily into making artificially intelligent soldiers, that could have some very bad outcomes. Because then those things could go rogue, you know, or people could, you, you, somebody could start making lots of them. It would probably be a person who did that, you know, but they could be a very negative tool. So uh, certainly you need to be careful with it. They already are. The drones already don't know how to make choices. Well, yeah, the drone thing. Well, usually you have a, a pilot. Some guy who's really good at video games right. is sitting in a room in San Diego running the drone. That's a weird job to have. Did you, would you like a book? Yes. I have mind tools. Can you have mind tools? That's hers. I'm a math major. Oh, you're a math major? All right, you need that. Yeah. Well, should I go on or one more question? Couple more questions. I already did you too. <laughs> right, how about you there? Um, I have a question about um, your stories. Yes. So, um, besides the uh, like Lifebox and Softbed, those are the only ones that I know. Um, what was your like favorite that you know, or like the best topic that you think that you made relevant? What are my favorite topics to write science fiction about? Like, of, of your stories that you have written, like <clears throat> immortality? Well, there's, I, I, <clears throat> I think I mentioned that I majored in math. So I've always liked stories about the fourth dimension. That's this sort of mysterious idea that, you've probably heard the expression fourth dimension, but what it means is sort of this rich science fictional thing you can get into. I also like, there aren't very many science fiction stories about infinity. And one of my first novels was called White Light. And that was about infinity. And I picked the title White Light because of the association with LSD. Not that I was somebody who was taking LSD a lot, but it just was a cool phrase, White Light. And uh, the guy goes to a mountain that's infinitely high, higher than infinity. And so that's very cool. You are the great-great-grandson of Hegel? That's right, the German philosopher Hegel. Uh, that's, that's what's touted. Uh, uh, Hegel once wrote, um, this, I accidentally bumped into it, I don't actually read it. Truth is a bacchanalian revel in which no member is not drunk, is what he said. <laughs> uh, bacchanalian means like Bacchus, uh, Dionysus, the god of wine, right? And uh, you're writing, you know, it's great, it's great because in which no member is not drunk is a double negative and Hegel is mm -hmm. negation. So that's, a, that's another aspect of it that's really amazing. And I don't know if it makes sense, he probably should have been positive about it, but I wanted to ask you about, uh, you, you obviously take great joy in your writing. Mm -hmm. um, I could see it in the way you read that. And it was, that was maybe the most interesting thing about watching you read it. How important it is, you know, Let's talk a little bit about being a writer and how important it was for you to decide to go there. You're not, I, I don't think of you as a math professor who writes on the side, you know. 
Well, writing was really my main thing, and, and being a math professor was my day job. I, I taught at San Jose State for 20 years, 30 years. Uh, and initially, I was going to teach math there, but then they said, well, you can teach computer science if you want, because we don't have anybody to teach it. This was in 86. There weren't a lot of people with degrees. But um, the writing, yeah, it's, um, it's my art. I've been doing it my whole life. And I, I work at it at various levels. I, I like to pick really nice words. And then I like the sentences to have a nice rhythm to them. And then I like the, the images to be fun to look at. There's this phrase that I use sometimes called eyeball kicks. It's an old expression that cartoonists used to use. It's like things that are you know, just zapping your eyeballs or your mental eyeballs. So I like to have lots of those. And then uh, it's fun to have some sort of story in there with a little bit of a twist in it. And uh, do you have a recommendation for young writers and where they might, how, how, how do you begin? Where do you begin? Well, the, you have to start writing. That, that's the thing. And it takes a long time. And you have to rewrite. Uh, I do have, uh, if you go online to my website, rudyrucker.com, you can find a, a link, rudyrucker.com slash writing. And I have a little, uh, now and then I've taught writers, writers workshops, and I have some notes there, advice on how to write. Uh, but the, the thing with writing, it's, it's really, it's a practice and, and rewriting. And uh, also the thing is learning to write in your natural voice. Uh, sometimes people, as soon as they start writing something formally, then they, they don't, they try to use a vocabulary that's not like they would talk. You know, it's much better if it sounds like the way you talk, almost always. In our book, uh, Tech The Technical Reader, some of you have, uh, so there's, you're mentioned a couple of times in that book. And in one case, it's in, uh, a woman named Kramer wrote it, I can't remember her first name. Anyway, I can't remember think of her first name. But she mentions, uh, she's quoting someone else, Ben Hart, uh, who's also a thinker about sci-fi. And he's really into hard science fiction and making that distinction. And she's really making that distinction about hard science fiction and talking about other science subgenres. Mm -hmm. As and he, Ben Hart says, they're deboned. They've taken the science out of it. They're not as as intense as they should be in, about the the hard sort of subject matter. Instead, they go off into toward mainstreaming. Let's mm -hmm. something like that. So, what do you think about that controversy that there seems to be in the in the genre about who's pure, who's not pure, which is always true of every genre and every, everything. It's yeah. always arguments about purity and all of that. Well, I think, uh, to me, it's important, and this is something a lot of so-called hard science fiction might lack. I think it's important to have characters that are like actual people you would know, that are, you know, they have a kind of a rich personality, and they're sort of funky. They're my, I always try to create characters that you, you're sort of curious about what they're like, and to give them emotions and, and so on. So uh, that was a weakness of, uh, well, there's you know, certain kinds of, I mean, if, I don't know. Like sometimes the, the characters in, in a movie like, oh, like Star Wars or, or even Star Trek, they tend to be a little bit thin, the personalities of the people there. I mean, there's certain quirks they have, but there's not this free sense of, of having a rich personality. and. Uh, 
So I don't think it should be just all about the science. At least that's not the kind of science fiction I like to write or read. But on the other hand, I do think, uh, I do like to have some actual, there's different levels of putting science in. You can learn buzzwords, like I threw in some buzzwords here, so it sounds like science, even though it's all bullshit, you know, but it's, it sounds like it might be true, you know, so I like to do that. But one thing before I can tell that we're almost done, I want to get a picture of you all. Uh, I want to ask you, I did, I did notice in that story the teleporter moment, you know, and you talk in your, and everybody should read the website and look at this stuff, it's really interesting, it's quite a resource. And smile while you're sitting there. Right. <laughs> and you talk about uh, uh, tropes of uh, science fiction. <laughs> you know, a trope is a common way of exploring an idea in a, in a particular art form. Yes. Uh, and you, you mentioned gnarly, in, and I think that's one of your tropes, to tell you the truth. And, and I would say teleporting is probably one of you think, uh, something you think is one of the common tropes of, yes. of science fiction. In other words, it, it tends to come back to things like uploading the yeah. consciousness, things like that. So maybe a moment about that. Well, there are these certain things that science fiction writers write about over and over, time travel, artificial intelligence, telepathy, teleportation. And why do we care about these things? Why are we so obsessed with these things? Uh, well, if you look at fairy tales, you'll actually find a lot of those things in there too. I mean, there'll be like the magic cloak that you can makes you invisible, or the the magic uh, shoes that can let you fly from one place to another. And I think these things they sort of represent. I've always felt they, to some extent, represent things in our real life that we would like to have. I mean, we all want to travel more, but it's so hard. And teleportation is the sort of dream of having it be really easy to travel from one place to another. You know, just snap your fingers, and you don't have to go through, you don't have to get on a plane, such a hassle. And uh, te telepathy has always interested me, because that's this sort of dream that people would understand what you're saying instantly, you know? And the way we communicate is really pretty strange. I mean, we make noises with our bodies, and somehow we've learned this system, so that supposedly sets up the person and decodes that and does something to their brain to produce an internal pattern that matches your mental pattern. It's odd. Uh, yeah, I had that famous question, would you rather be invisible or fly? This is a famous question that you know they ask people if they, which would you prefer to do, uh -huh. and uh, also of course teleportation also obviously brings up a huge immigration issue. To tell you the truth, oh, what are we going to do about that? You can't have a TSA on a teleporter. I mean, it's going to be very very interesting to see where that goes. But so I just that question you should keep that in mind. You should answer that question for yourself, I suppose. But uh, anyway, yeah, I was just interested in how you how you deal with. Those things. Now, how about publishing? What is, what's your recommendation about that? Briefly, we're. Um, uh, it's. It's hard to get published. Um, <laughs> there's a. The, it's changed over the years. If you find some magazine or online zine, that publishes things that you like then you can get their address and try sending a story to them and see what happens. 
Uh, publishing a, a book is even harder. Uh, you can get the name and address of the publisher from the title pages and go ahead and mail them the, the manuscript and see what happens. Uh, it's not, if you're just starting out, it's, there's not really that much point in getting an agent because an agent is not going to really do anything for you if you're just starting. Uh, and because then you're just, it's, it's easier to search for a person to publish it than to search for an agent because then that puts you, makes a second order search. It gets hard, it's tricky. Um, you can also self-publish, uh, which is a lot easier than it used to be. Uh, recently, some of my novels, I published 40 books, and uh, over the last few years, it's, uh, the market is kind of narrowing down, and it's harder for me to, all the, normally I, I had real publishers do them all, and now it's, sometimes a publisher won't take one of my books, and then I'll, uh, it's possible to publish it yourself. 